It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is our weekly opportunity to sit down with the award-winning journalists covering the East End, do a deeper dive into the week's news. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and the Express Magazine. Uh, my co-host is Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Our panelists today are Joe Workmeister, staff writer at the Riverhead. I'm sorry, staff writer at Newsday. Sorry, Joe, didn't getting getting you confused. Good morning, Joe. Good to have you. Hey, no problem. Uh, old old habits. It's, yes, it's okay. exactly. <laughs> we have uh, Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of Riverhead Local. Hey, Denise. Good morning. How you doing? And we have Annette Hinkle, who's the arts and living editor for us here at the Express News Group. Good morning, Annette. Hey Joe, how are you? Also a member of our editorial board. So um, let's let's kick off talking uh, about a Sag Harbor issue, and it is really the issue in Sag Harbor right now. Sag Harbor's been full of uh, news in the last year or so, but uh, this is really the the biggest issue uh, up in Sag Harbor at the moment, and that is the the Marsden property, uh, which is the shorthand that we've used for it, um, and that's a proposal to buy a proper, a set of properties, actually a little cluster of properties right near uh, Pearson Junior Senior High School um, and to use it for athletic fields. Joe, this has been uh, a fight that's been going on in Sag Harbor now for uh, well over a year, I believe. And uh, it, it reached a sort of key moment this week as the town was getting ready to move on allowing a CPF, uh, the use of CPF money to make this purchase. But the town seems to have hesitated, and uh, we are wondering if that's a, a significant um, development in this case. Yeah, you mentioned this has been you know ongoing for a year. I'm just kind of doing a real crash course on this uh, this this past week um, after there was a public hearing on Tuesday that went four hours almost. 50 people, I think, um, spoke. And so essentially where the project is at now is the, the town where there's uh, community preservation funds, $6 million, form a partnership school district, and then allow the school district to build this athletic field. And um, and and so it's, as I said, been been a controversial topic and the town board seems uh kind of hesitant to go forward with with this at the moment there was a, a lot of questions. i think we're losing joe a little bit yeah, maybe kind of lost and, joe. yeah and, and that maybe we can get you in the mix here because um yeah. this is i know you've been sort of I, I actually watching got it for a minute um, i'm sorry yeah i think I, I was a little unstable too, according to my internet. So hopefully, I will hang in there. But um, it's a bad internet day. Everybody's so having I did a, not, a bad I internet did, hair day. I, I actually didn't hear what Joe was able to get in, but basically, the the school had originally, I think, had wanted to install a, a turf field on that property because they're one of the only school districts on the east end that does not have a turf field. And apparently, there are some sports for which turf is far superior, like field hockey is one, for example. Um, and that's been sort of something that the school, I think, has wanted for a long time. It's kind of controversial because when they redid the Pearson field behind the school a number of years ago, it was voted down to have a turf of turf field that's artificial turf. Um, so there was a lot of concern at that time about having it. And some, I think the people who were opposed to it back then feel like this is sort of like an end run around them to try to install a turf field now by purchasing this property and installing it on the Marston lot. Um, so there was talk that the uh, and, and and whether it would be appropriate if you had CPF money involved to put in plastic grass, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I think that was sort of an interesting argument. And basically, the school backed off on the idea of putting in an artificial turf. So I think they were a little surprised by the number of people that showed up at the most recent meeting. And we're still against this, even with the natural grass turf. So um, that, I think, took them by surprise. And they thought that this was going to be OK. It's a natural grass field, CPF money we're in. But there's still obviously a lot of people that don't want to see that development happen at all. And that's what yeah. came out on Tuesday night, I believe. Jay Schneiderman basically said the use of CPF money is usually 
a positive thing that everybody's in favor of. And, and he seemed genuinely taken aback that after they reached this agreement not to do an artificial turf field, uh, that the problems didn't go away. There were still there was still just as much opposition. So and, and you know, Bill, we're going to talk about this in a podcast. Uh, what's interesting, too, is the, the fact that the artificial turf field as an option went away. And I mean, there was a lot of conversation about whether or not an artificial turf field is a safe option for students, even though there are a lot of artificial turf fields being used at schools um, all over Long Island, but there is this growing concern about the use of certain artificial turf products um, that I think sparked the concerns locally. But at the same time, well, yeah, the flip I mean, side of and, and the district even came in with kind of a hybrid proposal, which which is mostly regular field, but with with kind of like a, um, a a synthetic under underlayment to the field that would kind of keep it keep it more sturdy. And and the town actually just came in and said, no, no, no artificial field at all there. It's got to be a grass field or, or nothing or you're not getting the CPF money because, you know, there had been so much opposition and, you know, um, in the district and, and in the veil in the village, to any kind of turf um, artificial turf proposal. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was interesting, too, that, I mean, that's been off the table now for a couple weeks um, if the if the district still wants the CPF money um, and and people are still opposed. I'm not sure exactly what what the opposition to to the plan is now, other than, you you know, you're turning, uh, um, you know, granted, it's adjacent to the school district, but you're turning residential properties then into more school properties, which. Kind of could create kind of a you know a nuisance for for some you know neighbors living there, and I think there was some environmental concerns there, there too. Yeah, because there was no secret review, I guess that they. I think there also was some concern that if you know, would this be property that is administered by the village of Sac Harbor, or is it just belonging to the school districts? I guess that if it's only school district pop property, they're late, kind of able to get around. A lot of like um, other laws and rules that would go into effect if, if the village had been involved, right? So I think that was part of it as well. And also the idea that one of the lots they wanted, they, they're looking to buy, they were going to turn into a parking lot. So you really are kind of changing the face of that whole Marston Street, you know? Um, and there's a lot of people in this, you know, I know a lot of them personally in Sag Harbor who are much, are very against the idea of just creating more blacktop parking lots, you know, in the village. And using the CPF to do it, which is I mean, sort yeah, of ironic kind of because well, they, they weren't, the CPF wouldn't be used for the parking lot. No, that would be so the that, second. That purchase, parcel, right? the, the district was, Got it. was, was it would purchasing be part of the separately. Project. But my, I feel my, like a lot my, of the opposition was at the, yeah, the environmental concerns and that there was no study done about the, the you know, it's a very low lying area there. So it, there, it is kind of like a, there's a lot of water issues and things like that. And I don't think any of that has really been looked at yeah. as far as I know. I, I don't there's know. An for argument. for, for, for me, the bottom line is you just can't let these these parcels go. I, I, I mean, and there's certainly an argument for some people that you know, that the town and the district should just, you know, not not purchase the parcels and let it go. But when is the district ever going to have another chance to, um, you know, to to purchase adjacent parcels to to the school, whether it's going to be used for, you know, for an athletic field? I guess you could work that out at, at some point. But I, I think there's um, to, to let this to let this go would would be a regret in the future and, and a mistake. That's just that's just my take. I mean, certainly the you know, the district can continue to use athletic facilities at Mash Park, which is what they do now. They they pay to use those facilities and the district was going to pay for upgrades at the park. And, and there's still some kind of plan to do that. But that's a mile away from from the school to have property adjacent to the school that the school district can use, I, I think, is 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 a, a winning proposition in, in one form or another. And, and maybe um, maybe there's a middle ground here to, you know, to get the parcels and then work out later what you're going to do with it. I don't know if that's possible in Sag Harbor. I, I, yeah, well, I think they may have actually had a more success if they had done that and just pointed out to the taxpayers, hey, we we have this property available. Let's go ahead and see if we can purchase it now. And then we can have like a community roundtable and forum about possible uses for that. Instead, it felt like they kind of had their whole vision. And, 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 I think, and, I, and I think they kind of had to because they were on the verge of signing a deal with the MASH Park board to, right. for a multi-million dollar project to upgrade the facilities there. 
Um, and if, you know, and if they had moved forward with that, then maybe the Marsden lots, um, you know, wouldn't be a possibility. So I think there were some con time constraints there to push the push the park board off a little bit um, and say, let us see what we can do over here with these Marsden lots. And then we'll get back to you on on that project. And I think because of that, there was just a time push there. Yeah, just I to see. clarify, too, the, the, the district now uses the fields at Mashashamuet Park, which is about a mile away. And so this would actually create a facility right across the street instead from the schools. And that's sort of one of the benefits. Joe, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't just, to, just to clarify that, I mean, it wouldn't replace the fields at, at, at Mash Park. I mean, you're talking right. about building one single field at, on Marsden and continuing to use, um, to some extent, the rest of the facilities at, at Mash Park. Yeah. So, Joe, we got you back here. Good, good to have you back. Yeah, sorry, sorry about that. There's That's home, okay. There's working there's from a, home. <laughs> this is one of the challenges of working from home. Yeah. There, there's a couple of, you know, what I find interesting about the debate that's going on is there are so many different angles to it. And one of the angles that's come up now that's worth pursuing is, so now that the, the town sort of pressured the school district after all of the community feedback uh, that they were hearing to not go with a, an artificial turf field or even a hybrid turf field. Um, and the town's role in this is since they would be contributing CPF money towards, towards making this purchase, the district making this purchase, it would have to be available for community use as well. And the community can go on this site and use this field for whatever it chooses to use it for when the district isn't using it. But there's there's also now sort of a, a, a feeling out there that a, a regular turf field may not hold up to that kind of use, that, that if you just put in a normal turf field and you let the community come on and play soccer and, and, and do all the things that, that we think that field is probably gonna be used for by the community, uh, it's not just gonna be people walking around a track, it'll probably be actively used. Um, it may not hold up. Yeah, sorry, I missed you know the earlier part. I, I cut out, so I missed you know, where the conversation went um, earlier. But um, yeah, so so from what I understand, this proposal had originally had a turf field, and there was a lot of pushback on the turf field, and and so now they're looking at a a you know a grass field which is complicated because the area you know with the kind of wetlands there it's concerns about whether it could drain properly and there's kind of these sort of elaborate engineering uh plans that no one quite knows if they would work there or not and the town couldn't get a quite a straight answer on that and and um so one of the things uh, the supervisor jay schneiderman was saying was he he really thought once kind of the turf field was off the table that that would kind of alleviate a lot of the pushback on this and that wasn't the case um even without a turf field uh on the table right now this the resistance is still as strong as ever and one of the interesting parts about that as well now there's also this pending um, or uh, ongoing litigation that started last month uh, from some of the most adjacent um, homeowners to that property and um and part of that uh, petition that they filed uh, talks about the, the turf field and from from what i heard that there's not 100 percent certainty that the turf field is off the board there's you know still concern that even though the school's sort of saying you know yeah you know we're going to do um you know a grass field that it's not you know set in stone and this could ultimately get approved and then next thing you know the turf field is back and so it's, this, it's worth pointing out joe that that the turf field was really the, the the selling point for the school district originally that, that they were saying they really want an artificial turf field for certain of their sports teams because they feel like it would give them a competitive, you know, it would they're playing on artificial turf fields all over and it would it would allow them to sort of play on a similar kind of a field at home, right? That was a, that was yeah. key to the to the proposal. It's almost I mean almost every school district on Long Island has a turf field at this point. Um, you know, I would, I mean, just from, you know, when I started out here, um, you know, Riverhead has added one, Shoremwind River added one, um, you know, I think, I think maybe Southhold out in, on the East End has one, but, you know, the North Fork schools use, uh, you know, they've, they've really almost every school has one. And, and there are, you know, some 
concerns about the turf fields that have been, you know, ongoing, you know, health concerns, if you know, these little kind of rubber pellets that are made with them and, and, um, you know, the long-term use is their health concern there. If you're, if you're on that field every day, um, yeah, I, I don't, couldn't really answer that, but, um, you know, the, the turf fields are, are popular and they're, they're much easier to play on. Um, you know, if it rains, they drain a whole heck of a lot easier than a grass field does. And, um, and, you know, especially sports like field hockey are particularly better suited to be played on, on a turf field. So, you know, it's kind of like a different game almost when you're playing it on grass as opposed to the turf, as most schools do now. So um, I know, you know, Pearson has a, has a field hockey program and, and, and soccer um, is, is great on the turf where, you know, they can just play games more frequently. So, it, yeah, it seemed like, you know, that kind of came off, off the table. That was um, – and um, – so yeah, I don't know if that would you know ultimately be in consideration somewhere else or or what, but yeah, it's, we'll have to see about that. And at the the other thing that the other argument that takes place with this is it's the use of CPF funds for a school district project, and that's raised some some eyebrows. Um, the idea that the town is willing to kick in a, a fairly significant amount of money to make this uh, purchase happen. Um, even though it would be primarily for a school district use. And that seems to be uh, something more or less new for the, for the CPF. Yeah. It seems like we've gotten a little more creative with the CPF use in recent years. I mean, think also about how the CPF money was used to preserve the facade at the Sag Harbor cinema. That was sort of a novel use of that fund. And I think part of the issue also, which is very interesting, I think, is that, you know, the amount of money that Sag Harbor real estate contributes to the CPF is fairly sizable. But Sag Harbor is not a place that has a lot of open space left to purchase just by the nature of it being a more densely settled village. So I also feel like it's this, these kind of novel uses are a way to allow municipalities that maybe are more densely settled and don't have available land to sort of take advantage of the fact that they too have paid a lot of money into the CPF without a lot of available purchases. So, um, it, and but you know that begs the question, is this going to start a whole new avalanche of school districts putting their hand out for the CPF to help them, you know? Um, I mean, we've talked about this, I think, in the office before, the idea of other schools trying to get the CPF money to help pay for fields may not be um, coming down the pike because most of the other fields, like Joe had mentioned, already have their turf fields. They already have the land around the school. Stag Harbor is just a really oddball little school in that it was built in a very confined area with not a lot of open space around it. So I don't even, I don't know if other districts are going to be like, hey, wait, we want CPF money to pay for our fields too. Because I feel like most of the other schools are pretty largely set in terms of what they've already developed around the school property, if that makes sense. Well, and it begs, and it begs the question too. And, and so the whole, the whole idea of being able to use CPF funds for this field is, is the public access that, that Joe talked about that when, when it wasn't in use for the schools, then the public would be able to, to come in and, and use the field for, for whatever reason at nights, weekends, um, that type of thing. So you're using public money, CPF money, and allowing the public to use these fields. And and I I mean, people have argued with me, and, and I may be wrong here, but I don't, especially with Mash Park being only a mile away, I don't see a lot of people coming in and utilizing that field on, on the weekends at nights. Um, but but I mean, I, I could be wrong there, it, it, but it would be contingent on that. If people aren't using the field, then that CPF money has gone strictly for a school district project i mean you guys you guys think that 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 rather than going to mash park people would that the public would come in and utilize this this field you know on on weekends and and nights to um you know i guess play soccer or or, you know do other do other activities i mean i I feel like well yeah go ahead um, apparently, I mean, from what I've heard, yeah, there's a there's a big belief that they will. Um, there's also the whole thing that when Pearson did do the grass field behind the school, um, there's been a lot of complaints that that hasn't really been maintained. I mean, it's got a lot of heavy use because I think the phys ed classes and, um, you know, a lot more students use that during the day. But, you know, these grass, I guess a natural 
grass field takes a lot of maintenance. And there's been complaints that they're not really maintaining the grass field they have that well. So, um, but I, from what um, we've heard around the office and and other people say that there's a lot of people out there looking to play sports um, everywhere all the time. So there's some thinking. Oh, okay. they could just put, put pickleball courts in there. How'd that go? Yeah. <laughs> Might be a little more fun. Yeah, I think as you were saying, part of the, part of that public hearing, a, a big consensus was kind of this debate of whether this is an appropriate use of CPF funds, you know, at all. And I think the supervisor kind of pushed back on that a little bit, you know, saying that recreation is an appropriate use. There's precedent for that. And as you mentioned, there are specific, you know, uh, guidelines that would have to be filed, as you said, with the public access being one. And, you know, he felt that this plan would allow enough public access that it would work. And then there's also kind of um, some things where, um, you know, the town with CPF funds couldn't use that to build the, the actual field and they can't use it for the maintenance of the field. So those things all kind of fall on the school district. But so, you know, the CPF funds for this would, are kind of strictly for you know, acquiring the property and then the school district uh, kind of takes over from there. So it, it, from what the supervisor says, he, you know, he seems to think it's, it is an appropriate use, but now whether they actually go forward with it or not, is another uh, question, but um, you know, that was, that was definitely a big, um, big topic during the hearing of, you know, did, some did people you, saying this is not an appropriate use. Did you get the impression, Joe, and, and I, I didn't watch the meeting, um, but, but it seems like, like, um, the supervisor Schneiderman was kind of really backing off a little bit when when he talked about um, you know he he mentioned that he thought that the real issue was was against the turf but but even with that off the table there's still a lot of um, there's there's still a lot of opposition to um, to to the project and he talked about normally when we get a CPF project it's not controversial. Um, and he said he didn't know how to how to move forward or how to proceed. Did, did you get a a, a sense? Did, was your spidey sense tingling tingling that that um, you know that the town might just kind of back out of this? Yeah, I mean my my sense was they there didn't seem to be much much of an inclination to really move forward as the plans are set in place. Um, yeah. You know, so essentially they adjourned the hearing to March 14th. So that gives, you know, a couple of weeks to kind of gather more information from the school and see where they land. Whether, you know, no one seemed too optimistic that there would be this, you know, whole trove of new information that kind of clears everything up by March 14th. Uh, but, you know, you never know. And, um, you know, could they come up with an alternative somehow along the way, you know, possibly? And yeah, um, but, you know, they, they didn't. I, I'm not asking you to be psychic. I I I'm just wondering what what your impression was. I don't think they was. seemed excited about the fact of having the hearing again and having yeah. you know everyone come out and and kind of re rehash everything they said at this uh, first hearing, which went four hours. So um, yeah, we'll, kind of, we'll see and, what and happens pushing, and now pushing, on March 14th. Pushing the hearing off kind of hobbles the the school district a little bit on their plan to have a public vote for. For the expenditure of the money, that right? They're so putting yeah, in. that was the big thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they, I think they, I think they had a date of around March twentieth. That kind of is the cutoff to, you know, uh, kind of like know that the CPF would be in place to then take the next steps to get it before the voters um, when the budget it, when the budget would happen little, in May. It was a little surprising. It created some drama that I'm not sure anybody expected because there was there was at least the option for the town to actually vote on this at that meeting, I believe, and and the, so delaying that vote for a couple of weeks. We're all sort of reading tea leaves to see if that's put the entire project in jeopardy or not. But yeah, that's something we're going to be watching in, yeah, um, we'll in another two weeks. That's going to be, again, I think it's really the, the biggest proposal right now in Sag Harbor and something a lot of people are talking about. So we'll definitely keep an eye on it. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Joe Workmeister of Newsday, and Annette Hinkle of the Express News Group. And Denise, uh, let's get an update from uh, Riverhead Town Hall. Um, you guys are having a conversation up there about planning books. And I remember from uh, the discussion yeah, pattern, of this subject. Pattern books. Uh, pattern books, I'm sorry. Uh, it's a planning tool that right. they use called pattern books. Uh, there was a conversation about that in Hampton Bay's not long ago. And, uh, you know, it's something that that sparks 
a, a bit of a kickback from some folks, and you're you're dealing with that up in Riverhead, right? Yeah. Um, the so the town board adopted uh, the a pattern book for downtown Riverhead. Um, Can you explain what that is? What what is a pattern book? Well, it's kind of a weird name for a planning study. I don't know. It's you know because it's form based zoning. They were ta- is what they're talking about. So um, I guess that's where they get the idea of the patterns, but it also has to do with architectural styles and standards. Like you know, um, that, this effort grew out of a um, reaction in the community to uh, these very, uh, by, by local standards, large buildings, you know, the apartment buildings, these five story, 60 foot tall buildings being built downtown um, on Main Street. And uh, a lot of people reacted very badly to that. They thought they were inappropriate. They thought they were ruining the community character. So there was this kind of like groundswell of, we need to rethink this. Um, That zoning allowing those buildings was adopted in 2007. And so the town hired, um, they actually met with people who were involved in the Hampton Bays um, pattern book uh, effort. And they adopted, um, they they hired a um, planning firm out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which did pretty extensive um, planning work, community outreach, et cetera, and made recommendations about what the buildings along Main Street, how to improve, how to improve the look of the buildings along Main Street. Um, recommended um, buildings that are only four stories tall, stepping back on the upper floors to reduce massing, they say, create you know, broader like sidewalks where you can um, have like sidewalk um, attra- not attractions, but like seating and plants and things like that to make it less kind of like we're walking through a tunnel of big buildings, you know. Um, and so, um, you know, it was they did a lot of outreach. They did online surveys. They had community meetings um, and the town board in January of I want to say 21 adopt I should have checked this sorry but adopted adopted the pa- the pattern book they officially adopted it even though there were people who were opposed to doing it in the first place but it got a unanimous vote and then they had to set about um kind of like implementing it because a plan is just a plan even if it's adopted you still need code to make it happen right and so that's where Riverhead often has some trouble. <laughs> um, and uh, again, you know, they so they devised this code to implement the planning book recommendations. And they had a public hearing and a number of people stood up. And um, there's this uh, business advisory committee um, that was formed a couple of years ago. And uh, the chairperson of that committee got up and objected to adopting this code, even though the pattern book was adopted. And it has been in limbo ever since. Um, and it's, it's uh, you know, what what's going on with that? Because meanwhile, applications come in. I was going to say, you have some proposals that would yeah, be proposed. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, then what happens with them? Because the town board has taken this kind of um, approach where, you know, if someone's filed an application, more or less, now you're grandfathered, you know, like we're not going to exempt you. And they've even, you know, some officials have even made very um, striking misstatements of what the law is on that in that regard. There is a law of when you have to be grand, when they can't take your rights away. It's called vesting and you've got vested rights. But um, that generally comes in, under New York State law. It's well settled. Comes very late in the process, at the very end. Um, like it's, ready to it's interesting shovel in the ground, kind of. You know, not when you file an application. It's so. interesting to me that the the aesthetics of how downtowns develop is a really hot topic, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think people people get very exercised about this, um, about how the downtown looks. Um, and and I think the towns are really challenged uh, when they've got um, areas like this that are, that are going to be developed. The towns and the villages have to figure out 
Well, it was the same in, in Hampton Bays, right? I mean, you want yeah. you want a uniform look. You want it to look like Main Street, whether that's Mayberry Main Street or Riverhead Main Street or whatever. You want a uniform look, so you want all the the businesses and buildings. I, I think without it being cookie cutter, saying it has to be, you know, they have to all exactly be the same. There's certain there's certain aesthetics that that they have to kind of share, so it looks like um, a unified Main Street. Am I correct on that, Denise? Um, well, I mean, there's, you know, architectural standards that right. are, are employed in a lot of places. Riverhead has an architectural review board without the architectural standards, basically. So, you know, it then becomes very subjective. And I mean, I, like it's subjective and it's like my taste, but like the architectural review board has made some decisions that have kind of raised my eyebrows. Like, what? All right. What they do that for, you know? Um, like the uh, Preston House Hotel, right? Um, they, at their suggestion, they kind of like mirrored the front of that, of the front of that building. Um, they don't like things that kind of mimic old-fashioned architecture. Like they think uh-huh. it should be, you know. So everybody's got, and I'm, you know, I'm no architect by any means, but everybody's got opinions. And the the chairman of this business advisory committee is an architect, and. You know, he's saying that the the town should have guidelines, but shouldn't impose its opinions, basically, of what buildings look like on architects. Like, that's their professional, you know, um, purview, and that's what they do. So let them do what they do. Uh, But beyond that, it's like a lot of this has to do with, you know, the height of the buildings and how much of the lot a building can cover and what kind of uh, floor it's floor area basically a, a building you know the developer can get out of a parcel okay and um <clears throat> that's really the key because they want as much as they can get true but you know and, it's the form, like- form based form based code which is what it seems to be coming into vogue i think it's also really confusing for people and mm-hmm. municipalities to wrap their head around i know they were talking about this in sag harbor and um I think it's it's kind of an abstract concept, you know, the idea that you you like it's it's more it's almost like a ge- geometrical design to zoning or something. But I feel like I feel like it's sort of like a brand new philosophy that just a lot of people just don't understand. It is. I, I think it's kind of like the, the new math of planning. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I think it's fuzzy and I, I I'm not terribly comfortable with it. I mean, like I. You know, the old fashioned zoning, Euclidean zoning is like these, in this <laughs> yeah. district, you can have these uses, you know, and you yeah. leave the, the so, aesthetics up to the they, architects. I, they, they you know, the, art. the other problem right. with this, I think, is people really don't understand. And I, and I go back to the Hampton Bays Center when it was proposed. And that's, of course, the, the King Cullen property uh, in the middle of Hampton Bays. And when that was proposed. You have to look at it as essentially it was a strip mall along Montauk Highway that was being proposed. And when it was proposed, the 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 town and the architects all pitched this idea that it would be right up against the sidewalks on Montauk Highway. And the reason for that was that they those all would have storefronts on Montauk Highway, too, and they would mimic the look of the rest of the town where you have storefronts that are on the sidewalk. And so they are right up to the sidewalk. People didn't get that concept, I don't think, at the time, because they just felt like, well, wait, you're going to build this thing right up to the sidewalk. It's going to loom over the sidewalk. I think when you look at it today, the final design made a lot of sense. They, there's a variation of, the, of that storefront. There's a little bit of variation, so it's not it's not a, a cookie cutter all the way down that that block. Um, you know, you have some variation of of the setback from the the sidewalk, but not by much. But it's it looks like a normal Main Street set of buildings, even though it's really the backside of uh, of a complex. And those are the the challenges when you try and sell that as a concept, though, when it's just drawings. It's very difficult to explain to people what what you're trying to do there, and I, I feel like that's an example of a place where it worked. Despite, and maybe some people would disagree, but I feel like that block works. 
it does actually fit into the rest of Hampton Bays. It doesn't stick out, um, you know, like it, you know, it, it feels like that was good planning in, in that regard, at least with I the agree. aesthetics of it. I, I agree with that. I mean, I, then there's also this kind of like good government thing with this, because it's like one thing that happens over and over again in Riverhead and probably other places is like they agree to do a study. They authorize the money. It's often like a six figure price tag. Right. This pattern book thing costs over one hundred and seventy five thousand dollars. And then when all is said and done, they block at actually implementing it because there are people who have uh, the the ear of the you know the powers that be or the ears I guess um, who compl complain in the end and it gets put on a shelf you know I mean this has happened before and that's, I was going to say that's kind of typical for for some municipal you know, government and and that's really unfortunate because yeah. like you go especially when you go through a process where you get a lot of like community input and involvement which Riverhead also struggles to actually, A, want to do, and B, follow through on. And, like, then you toss it. Like, you know, I mean, that's kind of offensive, really. You know, I mean, so I don't know. And that's, like, where we are right now. This has been, and I, I did check our story, and it, it was adopted in January 2021. So it's, here we are a couple of years later, and it's still kind of in limbo. And, um, you know. And that kind of thing is just a problem. I think. I, I think it shouldn't be. That shouldn't. That shouldn't be how government gets run or does things. I mean, that's a lot of money when you have a town that you know isn't paying people enough to retain them because they have no money. You know, it's almost like you know, if you add up everything that we spend on lawyers and consultants, we could have a much more uh, functional government <laughs> in town hall. You know, we have a town clerk's office that has. You know, two and a half employees besides the town clerk. Southhold has four employees plus a, a records management officer, so they can digitize all of their records and have them online. You know, Riverhead doesn't have anything like that. Every department is understaffed, and the people are underpaid, and they can't hold on to them. There's a lot of churn. It's you know, it's a it's not a healthy situation, and I think part of it, fact, uh, part of it is money that gets spent in these other ways that don't bear fruit in the end. This but is really where a lot of the friction, a lot of the friction happens with town government. There's another, actually I should I should say, this is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Joe Workmeister from Newsday, and Annette Hinkle of the Express News Group. Bill, I, I wanna talk about a project in our backyard in Hampton Bays. Uh, that's a topic of interest now. It's the former Bel Air Cove Motel property. And this is an intriguing property with a history. It was a motel that actually was sort of converted uh, over time into affordable housing. It was being used essentially as, as a place for, for people to live for long periods of time. And, and it was a, a use right on Shinnecock Bay that, that was causing some environmental issues. And the, the town purchased this property using general fund money with, with a grand scheme, right? They wanted to do something really unusual here originally with this property um, in involving developers. Yeah, it was it, it was um it, it was pitched as economic development in 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 Hampton Bays and um rather than um you know, taking the property, purchasing the property as as open space or whatever, which the you know the community clamored for um, back then for years. They called for for open space preservation, but uh, town supervisor Jay Schneiderman wanted to um, you know keep the property on on the tax rolls and on the books and 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 making money and and being um, you know part of what he saw as a as. Uh, the the commercial redevelopment of Hampton Bay's geared toward tourism, so he wanted to. Uh, the The idea was that that the the town would make it easy for a developer to come in. So the town would buy the property, clear the old Bel Air Cove Motel after after evicting you know uh, dozens of tenants, I should say, um, and and then come up with a, a redevelopment proposal 
get all the permits in place so that the, so that when a new developer came in, they could just hand it over, shovel ready, and say, you know, build a build another, you know, build another motel here, hotel, whatever, um, and um, um, and it would be ready. The builder could could build it, and you know, within a few months, and and have it operating again. Uh, promoting tourism in, in Hampton Bays. There's not a lot of uh, hotels on on the South Fork, to be honest, until you get to Montauk, and so that was part of part of the idea. Um, so he there was a, a town board meeting uh, last week in which a couple of these developers, the I guess the final two proposals for this property um, came forward, and and one is kind of a I call it a quasi motel because the the units would actually be sold individually, but but then the um, the owners would be restricted on how how often they could occupy those rooms, and they would be encouraged through um, through the, the corporation overseeing it to to rent them out as hotel rooms the rest of the, uh, the rest of the time. The other it's sort of a hybrid situation, a, hi right? a hybrid, it, it right? It would almost be like condos that people would rent out. Right. And I guess yeah. that's a that's a common model lately. I, I I didn't, you know, I was reading the story and it was news to me, but I guess it's kind of common out in Montauk. Um, Schneiderman was was talking about that and he's in the hotel business out there. The other plan would be just kind of general senior housing condos, which no longer, I, I guess, kind of flies in the face of of the hotel tourism um, idea. And at, at the meeting, um, community members uh, continued their their objections to redeveloping the property. They would like to see it um, just kind of used as a as a community park with a little boat ramp. It doesn't go into into Shinnecock Bay, but there's a little um, there's a little waterway there that kind of connects it connects it over. Um, and and so they would kind of like to see it preserved. Uh, Schneiderman is saying no. The, the you know the we we didn't use preservation funds to purchase the property, so the town would be out the the money that they spent on it plus any any future revenue um, from property taxes that type of thing. And he wants to stick to the plan, but uh, community members really want to see it kind of preserved. So it's kind of um, it, it feels like it's going to move forward with um you know with with this with the redevelopment plan but uh, if the community had their way um there there might be a, a last ditch effort to you know to have it preserved yeah the the town asked the community what do you want here and the community has pretty consistently no, the, town, the town never asked the community what they want there to to be fair um as far as as the town came in and said this is going to be a redevelopment plan an economic redevelopment plan from day one, Schneiderman said that that was his plan. I don't think he ever really asked the the community, and 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 you know that's a sticking point in 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 Hampton Bays, as as we learned recently with uh, you know with the whole debacle about um, you know the the the, um, um, the the consulting company where where that um, what, what what did the paragraph say called the you know community. Uh, nimbies or or whatever and and would push plans through so so i mean there's a there's a sense in in hampton bays and probably has been true in the past that the community isn't listened to when it's um when it's asked what what the future of of the community should look like and looking back four years ago when this plan first came up um you know maybe the town should have asked the community what they wanted to see there but but i don't think they ever did i think it was this is what we're going to do um, it's it's you know economic development keeping it on the tax rolls. I guess it's like you know the you know the, you're looking at fifteen thousand dollars a year in taxes and and you know um, the, the that you would be losing plus whatever jobs um, you know it, um, it it encouraged that type of thing and not for nothing. I mean whether it's whether it's the the quasi motel or senior housing, it, it it maybe it would ease the burden a little bit on housing although. Not as much as as a community housing plan would would do there, and maybe the, uh, maybe they should. The town may the town may never have asked, but the the community certainly has been fairly unanimous in in its Absolutely. feedback on that site, and and that makes it a fascinating development. We'll keep an eye on it going forward. Uh, I want to switch over to Joe Workmeister, and you had a story this week uh, about Sylvester Manor on Shelter Island. What's going on over there? 
Yeah, um, you know, Sylvester Manor, uh, obviously a very historic uh, property on the island, dates back to when the, um, you know, the first European settlers uh, came to the island and uh, was the home to um, uh, Native American tribes, you know, way, way beyond, longer than that. And um, so the Sylvester Manor uh, nonprofit that runs the property now, um, so there's the manor house, it's kind of the uh, centerpiece of the property, uh, you know, 10,000 square foot uh, home and been in need of a little bit of a, of a little a facelift and some upgrades, uh, particularly the exterior of the building. And uh, the home dates back to um, uh, like the 1750s. And um, so in late um, late 2022, um, the nonprofit got a uh, $500,000 um, state grant uh, through one of these programs where the state gave out you know, somewhere like $90 million through all these different projects across the state. And um, so from that, it kind of served as sort of a kind of a launching point for this capital campaign where they're hoping to raise about $8 million um, to, you know, uh, to fund um, kind of a, a project that will probably take uh, you know, two to three years to do to, um, you, you know, new windows in some spots, um, you know, looking at possibly a new roof, th you know, things like that. And um, obviously with such a historic structure, you know, it's very kind of specific uh, guidelines and, and, and how you have to go about um, you know, doing some of these uh, rehabilitation projects and preservation. So obviously not like, uh, in, you know, if you're, you know, if you're just putting a roof on your house, it's kind of, you know, pretty simple, but something like this is a little more complicated. So, um, you know, it is pretty expensive and, and they are trying to raise uh, a lot more money. And, uh, so they, they have grants out for about $5 million and they're kind of waiting to see what comes back and, and they're hoping um, that enough um, of that comes through that they could actually start uh, some of the work later this year. And as I said, it'll probably be about a you know, two or three year project project uh, in total. And um, so something, you know, they're uh, obviously pretty, pretty excited about. And, um, and, you know, for Shelter Island, this is, um, you know, just a, a place that, um, you know, draws a lot of people just to the history there. There's um, you know, the, the, the entire property is over 200 acres and there's trails and um, it's actually like a working farm now. And, and there's a farm stand that opens up in the spring. So, you know, you people can go there and do tours of the property. Um, the hiking trails actually just reopened um, uh, on March 1st. Uh, they had been closed for some work. And um, so, yeah, just, you know, pretty, pretty great uh, place and a lot, a lot, lot of history there. And people can definitely learn learn a lot about um, you know Native American history. There's a, a burial ground there that's a pretty sacred space. And um, uh, you know, as the executive director was saying, um, you know, it's space place you can come, spend you know a, a, an afternoon, and, and and learn a lot, and and, and see a lot of uh, great scenery as well. And uh, so this is a, you know this is a project they're pretty excited about, and uh, you know, hopefully they can get a lot of that uh, you know grant funding in place to make it all work and, and that you you've written about uh sylvester manor a bunch of times can you give us some context about how important a property that is in, on shelter um, the thing that's really cool about sylvester manor is that it's one of the only surviving examples of a northern plantation um so it was the 1600s when it was settled and it was um a good it was a good example of the triangle trade you know um the owners of Sylvester Manor, they bought the whole whole island. So originally Shelter Island itself was all part of Sylvester Manor. Mm -hmm. I think now it's like, I don't know, is it 340 acres, something like that, Joe? Does that sound right? I yeah, I think they said maybe 236, uh, yeah, something like that, the 200 acres. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good amount. It's a good amount. Yeah. But they, uh, um, so they have, they also owned sugar plantations in Barbados. And so they would, um, they would ship, um, raw materials from, um, Sylvester Manor over to England. And then goods from England would go down to maintain the sugar plantations. And, um, this is something I recently learned, but you know, the down in Barbados, everything was so given over to sugar, they didn't really grow the food and things that they needed to support the population. So that's kind of the function. But it's kind of unusual because unlike southern plantations where you had the enslaved people in one part of the property and then the owners and the, the people who ran the plantation elsewhere, in Sylvester Manor, it was a little different because it was earlier. So, so you had indigenous people, enslaved Africans, and um and then the owners of Sylvester Manor all living very close proximity to one another. And I believe back in the late 
1990s, um, the University of Massachusetts started doing archaeological digs there, and they've uncovered some really fascinating pieces of history. And it's so it's sort of a living laboratory and archaeological dig site. And they come back, I think, fairly often to poke around and see what they can find there. So it's just a very unique um, piece of history that doesn't really exist in the north very much anymore. So it's it's kind of a, a very special place and also yes yeah, and yeah it's it's interesting interesting so preserving it is certainly of real value because um and it's also a sort of a window into a part of our history we don't talk about all that much definitely don't talk about it a lot right you know and um yeah that's just sort of coming to light the whole idea of, of way the way um enslaved people lived in this part of the world which is not that well documented at this point but it's getting there. And it's, it's, it seems like the, the, the nonprofit, the people who run that now really try to, um, um, you know, be open to that history and, and acknowledge it and, 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 you know, certainly not, not run away from it or, or hide from it. And you know, they've been, I think, pretty yeah. transparent yeah. And, and trying to be, you know, use it as opportunity for people to you know, learn you what have, actually happened it. there. Donna Marie Barnes of the Plain Sight Project is the curator and archivist at Sylvester Manor. So it's sort of a nice tie-in. And that may have been what initially got the Plain Sight Project um, kind of, um, you know, piqued the interest of some of the things that she was discovering there at Sylvester Manor. So it's interesting. And there's some real place. I, I, I know from the stories that we've done in the past, there, there are just some amazing things that survive from that era that that are really a part of living history you can really you, you can get a feel for what life was really like on that on that property you know 300 years ago so that's yeah, a good not project a of, yeah definitely not a lot of places where you still have that kind of history intact that hasn't been built on or plowed under so yeah so it's a it's definitely a, a worthwhile project and uh, we wish them luck. Fundraising is always a, an issue for a project like that. But uh, lots of grant money out there for projects like this, we hope. We'll keep an eye on that. So we are out of time for this week. Uh, I want to thank our, our panel. Yeah, I know. Good good conversation. Uh, I want to thank our panelists, Joe Workmeister from Newsday, uh, Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local, and Annette Henkel of the Express News Group. Thank you, guys. We appreciate you taking the time to join us this week. Thank you. Thank you. Good, good to have you. And thank you to my co-host, Bill Sutton. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Joe. I'll and uh, I'm Joe Shaw. We will be back next week with another edition of Behind the Headlines. Thanks for joining us.